Welcome to Pitch Deck Series 5, where we'll be having bite-sized conversations with established investors in early-stage startups. Looking to provide you with great nuggets of information when raising or considering raising seed capital. Pitch Deck is supported by Trumpet. If you work in sales or marketing and are tired of spending hours a week creating sales decks, then Trumpet is for you. Design personalized, interactive and trackable mini sites in a few clicks. Stand out from the crowd whilst also giving your customers a seamless experience from pitch to onboarding. To find out more, visit www.sendtrumpet.com. That's sendtrumpet.com and join the best in brass. Okay, I'm really, really pleased to welcome Chris Holloman into our Pitch Deck studio today. Chris founded Divido in 2014, which is now the world's largest white label platform for buy now, pay later. As founder CEO, Chris took the company to 10 countries and onboarded over 100 clients, including the likes of MasterCard, HSBC, and BMW. They've raised over $50 million and are recognized as the 83rd fastest growing company in Europe by the Financial Times in 2021 and achieved a staggering 1,250% revenue growth over three years until 2020. Chris is, of course, also an angel investor and an investor with Seacamp, who themselves have backed over 350 startups, including the likes of Revolut and TransferWise. So, Chris, really pleased to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. So let's dive in with some questions. Um, one question I like to ask operators that I have on the podcast is, A, do you tend to get um, a lot of decks sent to you that are in your space just because of what you've done? And if you do, do you tend to be a lot more cynical or tough to win over with those decks because you've got the battle scars? It's a great question. Uh, to be honest, I see a very broad spectrum of companies. I wouldn't say it's like heavily indexing on on fintech uh when i do see fintechs very few do exactly what i'm very familiar with consumer finance retail finance and obviously fintech is so big and there's so many nuances that i i wouldn't say that even though i've done a fintech i'm an expert at fintech i i kind of value each company on their own merit regardless of of their background or or industry and focus and Linked to that, are there certain verticals you prefer as an investor or are you pretty broad? Well, it's funny you'd ask, actually, because I'm, I'm very new to this game, I should say. I've only been doing this for the last sort of six months uh, on a part-time basis. And in the beginning, I had this idea that I should be doing fintech. That's probably where I'm the most credible. I have the most connections and experience or whatever. Uh, but very quickly, I realized that there's a lot of interesting companies in other sectors as well. So I have now, I look at everything with kind of a open mind to see what's interesting. And, and my guiding principle is, is much more around, do I understand the problem? Have I had this? Am, am I myself interested in, in a solution either for personal reasons or for, for work reasons? So I think that's more the, the guiding principles these days. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I, I'm the same. Um, I think when I sold Design My Night, I was expecting to do lots of hospitality. And I think three of my 50 portfolio are hospitality. I think I'm, I'm scarred from hospitality. And it's refreshing, <laughs> refreshing to learn about other 
verticals as well that, as you say, you have no idea about. So out of interest, when when you get a, a deck in a vertical that you do have, let's not say no idea about, but not as, you know, clued up as fintech, how sort of deep do you tend to go on research? So you've seen the deck, you like it. You know, how far do you go within your network to try and really see if this is a good problem that they're solving and whether this is the solution to that problem? It kind of depends on if the company already has uh, secured significant backing, like if they're literally just topping up the the round and I'm the last one to join the party kind of thing. So if I'm a, a late joiner, then I wouldn't do much research. I would rely on the research of the maybe there's a lead investor or a institutional investor. Uh, but obviously, if I'm joining earlier on, I do like to reach out to to my network and, and see whether they are familiar with this problem, whether they are, know these people, or if they're connected to these people, what they were like working with and, and things like that. But uh, I would say it's pretty light touch because uh, I'm not a, a mass, a huge investor. I don't write massive checks. I'm still getting sort of uh, learning the ropes, if you will. So uh, I don't want to be causing too much extra work for the founders or, or, or me myself. I can't justify spending hours or days uh, looking at deals when I'm only putting in a relatively small check. I mean, I've led syndicates with other angel investors. And then obviously I do put in more effort, like interviewing the founders, meeting them uh, and sort of fielding questions from at any other members in the syndicate that have questions for them. So uh, it kind of varies deal by deal, I'd say. And you mentioned, you know, if you make, might be, you know, one of the last, last checks in, into the round. So that sort of leads me on to the, the, the idea of FOMO, where, you know, if, if a, a founder can create FOMO when raising, you know, not oddly enough, I suppose, you then suddenly get more checks rolling in. Are you someone, and as you say, has sort of, uh, you know, been investing for six months as an angel, does that FOMO affect you and, and your willingness to invest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I guess it's sort of a little bit weak, I suppose, but, <laughs> but it's also like something, you know, it's safety in numbers, right? Everyone can't be wrong. But isn't that what they said about Theranos as well, right? Yes. They all, because someone said yes, and everyone else started saying yes. And it was obviously a card house, you know, waiting to, to collapse. Um, so yeah, I, I think I do take a lot of confidence in knowing that bigger, more experienced investors have are kind of vouching for, for these companies. And as a founder as well, when we did our first fundraise for the first three months, we got literally 50 no's day after day, week after week. And I was the brink of, of giving up. But then one investor said, we'll give you half the money. And literally that week, everyone started saying yes. And we went from barely closing the round of 500,000 pounds to becoming totally oversubscribed, racing over a million in, in the last sort of three, four weeks. So I've seen it in action on the on the on both sides of this uh, coin. Amazing! I think that's great advice for listeners. That yeah, you're going to get a lot of no's for for various different reasons. It doesn't mean your business is a bad one, and a lot of angels, especially, will also be looking for that sort of lead angel or lead investor before they then back you as well. So yeah, keep going. You're going to get a lot of no's. I think that that's awesome advice, and. Behind the scenes of being an angel, so where where do you find that you get your get most of the deals from, and are there certain areas where you get these deals from that give the deal more credibility to you as an investor? 
So as you mentioned in the intro there, I'm in, uh, because my company was backed by Seedcamp, when Seedcamp did the last fund, they invited former founders or CEOs of their businesses to invest alongside their, their LPs. And, and so that's been kind of the number one source for me. When I get the opportunity, I, I try to take a look at that. But then to your other point as well about unsolicited approaches that so people do uh, reach out to me on, on LinkedIn directly. I'm also involved as a mentor in an organization called the Oxford Foundry, which is affiliated to the University of Oxford. So through that, I also get access and uh, deal flow that I take a look at. And then obviously, there's other angels that I collaborate with, and we share deals uh, between us. So it's sort of a little bit of a mix of everything there. And when you, we'll get, we'll get to Dex in a minute. So when you speak to a founder or Zoom with a founder, what are you looking for? Like, what what do you makes someone backable? It's going to sound maybe a little bit weird to say this, but I think that I'm looking for some characteristics and traits that I see in myself that I think has served me well to do go on this journey. Like, do you have the the grit? You know, wh- where you come from? What's your background? What is your motivation for doing this? Are, are you going to do this for ten years now? Are you ready for that? And uh, I think those are key things for me to understand if they're passionately convicted that this is what they're going to be doing and, and, and fully apply themselves to. I think that's the key thing. I don't know what you want to call it, energy or drive or grit or, or something. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally, totally agree with that. And, it, and it's interesting, I'm often asked, how, how do you spot that? And there isn't an answer to that, is there? It's, it's, you can't really put your finger on it. You just feel it in your gut, I feel, when I speak to someone. Totally, completely. I mean, I think one way that you could kind of look, glean something about this is where that person comes from. Like if they come from a different country, if they've had to immigrate or migrate, you know, they, they might have left things behind at home and they're, they have this, I mean, people talk about the American dream. Like I think where that comes from is a lot of people move to America with the dreams for a better future for themselves. And I think that's a tremendous sort of driving force. Uh, you see that in in, in Europe today as well, kind of a new generation immigrants uh, coming into to old markets and economies and kind of like, like transfer-wise, obviously Estonia, uh, Skype from Sweden, I mean, moving to the UK. Uh, I think that, that's one way I think you could, could see that. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I think, yeah, the, yeah, their story, I think, is, is often overlooked actually, but extremely important. So you mentioned there, you know, will I see if they, they're they in for 10 years or something? So I'm interested to know, often I get asked the difference between an angel expectation and a VC expectation. So if you're getting in early stage, when you're looking at a, a deck, let's say, are you thinking in your head, okay, how can I see this becoming a unicorn or how can I see this becoming... Uh, 50 million first because obviously as, a, as an angel getting in seed pre-seed actually you know a 50 million exit could be still a 25 times return where does your head sit with expectations of where a company can go so uh, my thinking is evolving on this as well and then obviously it's a bit too early for me to say whether i'm good or not at, at picking winners uh but my my kind of guiding principle is around 100x uh, whichever shape that might come, if it's a, a unicorn or otherwise, it's uh, that's the kind of the only principle that I'm looking for. And when you're reading a deck, are you hoping that the founder will be showing you how they are going to get to that scale, or is it something you would take away and look at a deck and think, mm, "How can I see them getting to that scale?" 
I think the caliber and the quality of the founders is getting better and better. I myself, you know, look back at my first pitch deck compared to these pitch decks I'm seeing today. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, the, the world has evolved tremendously for, for the better. I think it means there's more competition and, and, and money is hopefully being put to better use. And I think a lot of founders are clued up around understanding to talk in terms of the the things that are on on the mind of the investor what is this investor looking for and therefore i'm going to present information in my deck in such a way that the investor can see that without having to read between the lines so go away and, and crunch some numbers i think overall i see a lot a lot of decks already telling that story but you're absolutely right taking it away and sort of thinking do i see this becoming uh, a 100x exit or not i think there's a combination there in the end and this is this is called pitch deck so I'm interested to learn when you, so a, a few questions here. So when you get a deck for the first time, do you know on average how long you would expect to look at that deck for? Secondly, for you, what makes the perfect length in terms of number of slides of a pitch deck? And finally, the question around what makes a good pitch deck for you and what do you see in a pitch deck that would turn you off the company, like a bad trait? So I think it a little bit depends on uh, which hat I'm wearing. If I'm an advisor or a mentor for, for this particular startup, I would spend a lot more time critically examining every slide and giving them feedback on it. But if it's just um, I'm a late joiner, a small check in a bigger funding round, then I probably wouldn't spend more than a couple of minutes uh, browsing through it. And I probably wouldn't send too many questions. But but the I think the thing that I'm always looking for is to have as, as a short of a deck as possible. So I, I think it's a little bit of a red flag if you need tons of slides and words to explain what you do. And because I think if you're unable to articulate your value proposition to an investor, how will you be able to convince new talent to join your company or convince clients to, to use your, your solutions? So I think the fewer slides, the better, the less words, the, the better. And, and the kind of slides I want to see is the kind of slides you always hear about the problem the solution, the size, the growth of the market. It's, I think it's really important to you talk about your competitors and how they position themselves relative to you or how you position yourself relative to them. I'm still surprised by the number of startups that are kind of ignored to mention competitors. Agreed. But <laughs> that, that they don't exist. And also, I want to see the traction or you go to market strategy and, and obviously the numbers then to back all of this up and, and hopefully show me how this could become worth 100 times more over time. And how much weight would you put on those numbers, at, you know, seed, pre-seed? You, you sort of know as an investor, the founders kind of plucking them out the air. So how much, mm. how much weight do you put on them? Well, with the with divider, and I think this is common for a lot of startups, everything took twice as long as we thought it was going to take and everything costed roughly twice as much as we thought <laughs> it was going to cost. So that gives me a rough indication of how much you want to cut on their own projections, right? And whether it's the how quick it will happen or how much it will cost them or how much they will earn. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's completely taken out of thin air. Uh, and that's why I think the go-to-market strategy is more interesting. Like, uh, in fact, I had a, a meeting with Brent Hoberman many, many years ago, and I showed him my financials, and he literally pushed them to the side. I remember this vividly in this meeting room, and he said, talk me through your customer acquisition strategy. Because that's something that's much more tangible. Like, is this plausible? Are you going to rely 100% on AdWords? Or is it, you know, download our white paper? Like, how much thought and effort has gone into that piece? Because that's 
you know, probably going to say whether you're going to hit those numbers or not more so than the numbers you just made up in your Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, I think that's awesome advice. Great advice to end on. Don't neglect your go-to-market and don't assume that investors will know the go-to-market strategy for you. Um, As a good founder, you should be putting that in front of them. And as you say, I think it is often sort of underdone or missed. So I think that's some great advice. Brilliant to have you on. Really enjoyed our quick chat there. If um, a founder wants to get in touch with you or, or sort of read what you're putting out or learn about obviously the company you founded, where's the best place to, to find you? So LinkedIn is probably the easiest. And later this spring, my new website will be going live. So you can uh, also follow me there, holloman.info. Perfect. Look forward to seeing that. And thanks again, Chris. It was great having you on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed it, I'd hugely appreciate it if you can share it on socials or indeed just with your network. If you're feeling extra generous, I'd absolutely love it if you could leave us a review on Spotify, the Play Store or iTunes. That is the only way we get more listeners. So thanks for that. If like me, you're fascinated by how the best founders think, then you should definitely check out the Secret Leaders podcast. Whilst we look at fundraising, they go a bit broader, finding out about the highs, lows, and learnings from people who built businesses like Joe Malone, Monzo, Slack, and lastminute.com. You can even check out my episode on Secret Leaders, where I explain what went down with Design My Night. While you might be used to hearing all about the great things that founders have achieved, Secret Leaders have just launched a new bite-sized series where founders talk about their biggest failures. Hear from Trini Woodall about the crash of her dot-com business or Richard Clark on his pre-Dragon's Den days. I think you'll love it. So have a listen wherever you get your podcasts.